Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Laura Poco, Director of Marketing and Communications for HFSA, and I'm excited to bring you the third episode in season two of the podcast with a conversation on congestion and heart failure and the implications on patient outcomes. I'm pleased to welcome to today's episode, Dr. Mark Silver, a founding member of HFSA and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Illinois. Dr. Silver will be leading today's conversation with two heart failure experts who specialize in our topic. Our first guest is Dr. Maria Rosa Costanzo, who is the medical director for heart failure research at the Advocate Heart Institute in Illinois. Dr. Costanzo's clinical and research focus has been on cardiorenal syndrome and fluid overload in acutely decompensated heart failure patients. Dr. Costanzo is also a member of the HFSA Board of Directors. Also joining us today is Dr. Marat Fudim, an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University in North Carolina. Dr. Fudim's clinical and research focus is on volume management and the characterization of congestion in heart failure. I'd like to welcome everybody to the show. And at this time, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Silver, to get things rolling. Thank you, Laura. And it's a pleasure to be here today with Dr. Costanzo and Dr. Fudim. And uh, welcome to this podcast. The topic is congestion and heart failure. And it is such an important topic. I recall that at the Heart Failure Society just last year, one of the sessions was called Why Congestion is Such a Big Deal. So I want to start by discussing that, but I'm going to first ask Dr. Costanzo, a lot of people will recall that at one time, this disease state that we call heart failure was called congestive heart failure. So what did we mean by that? And where has that congestion in the name gone? We have called heart failure, congestive heart failure for a long time. You are absolutely right. And I believe the reason we use the word congestive is because we were thinking primarily about the patients that we admit to the hospital when they are very ill. And we know that more than 1 million hospitalizations for heart failure 90% are related to congestion. The reason we now refer to our failure alone is because we have acquired many methods to monitor patients, to treat patients. So it is very possible to have heart failure patients that are stable for very long periods of time without congestion. As to what this is, basically it means the presence of extra fluid where fluid should not be, such as in the breathing units of our lungs, under the skin in our legs, and an area that we focus on more and more now is the congestion that occurs in our abdomen together with extra fluid in the liver. So when we talk about congestion, we refer to excess fluid both in the lungs and elsewhere in the body. Well, that's great. What you said really 
brought up a very important question. It sounds like fluid is just everywhere and just floating around, but that's not actually true. It's in an actually very specific parts. And so, Dr. Fudim, I'm going to ask if you might talk a little bit about where is the fluid and how important are each of those compartments? Thank you for having me on. So I think congestion is a quite complicated term as Dr. Costanzo started to elaborate on and has evolved over time how we define it. And maybe to close the loop on the first question, I think the relationship of congestion with clinical outcomes has been recognized 20 years, just as much as recognized today. Once a patient has evidence of congestion, whatever that might be, we'll discuss in the next minutes. It is usually associated with bad outcomes. Patients feel bad with it. Patients might need to be hospitalized. Patients might die sooner. When we look into what congestion exactly means, it usually is associated, the notion of congestion is associated with fluid overload. And fluid overload, if present, can be distributed across multiple compartments. And there are different ways to look at that. If we look at the human body, let's say about 70% of the human body consists of water. The majority of water is actually sitting in the cells. Individual cells contain the majority of the water in our body. The second component of, let's say, about 30% of water that we contain in our entire body sits in the interstitium. The interstitium is the tissue between cells, the tissue that connects the cells to each other. So a lot of water is stored there as well. And then the final compartment is the intravascular compartment. That's a compartment in the arteries and veins. Often when we think of water in our body, we think of the blood volume, but it actually is the minority of the water in the body that is sort of expressing itself as blood volume. And an average 70 kg man or woman has about four to five liters of blood volume. So the interesting thing is that when we say congestion, we often think of the intravascular blood volume as the one that is expanded, but it also expands to the interstitial volume, which is often expanded and it can present itself as edema in the lungs, edema in the legs, that's interstitial to many degrees. When we think of intravascular expansion of blood volume, that's when we usually look at the neck veins of patients and see that the neck veins are distended. And that would typically indicate that the blood volume is expanded. Having said that, we might dive into this a little bit deeper in the upcoming minutes. That is actually not that simple because a lot of conditions can elevate the neck veins without the presence of blood volume expansion. Right. That's really helpful. And it's not that simple, but it's really important because as you began to talk about expanded volume in any of those compartments really has its consequences. It can lead to initiation and the progression of heart failure. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Good. And okay. if I may add, Please. in my clinical experience, when I see patients that have swollen legs, one of the first things I try to tell them is that when we see swelling in the legs, that's a late manifestation of congestion. There is fluid elsewhere in the body already, and in particular around their gut. And that fluid prevents them from being able to absorb the medications so that the medications that we give them are not as effective due to the swelling of the interstitial fluid around the gut as well. 
So I try to tell them not to wait two, three weeks of leg swelling before they contact us, but as soon as possible. Yeah, that is so important. So, I mean, the story here is that fluid in any of the compartments is critically important, and yet it's really hard sometimes to find or to understand where it is or where it's coming from or what to do. So let me ask both of you this question. What do clinical teams do to determine the degree of congestion in each of the compartments? What are the steps that they take? Dr. Fadim alluded to some of them, but Maria, what else do you do when you go to evaluate the patient? Well, I try myself to teach to everyone that rounds with me and especially the nurses and nurse practitioners in the heart failure clinic, how to look for signs of congestion. And like Marat mentioned, learning to observe the congestion of the veins in the neck is extremely important because they give you at least an idea that there is a lot of fluid that that patient has on board. So there is first, obviously, the physical exam, careful listening of the lungs and examination of the extremities. And then for many cardiovascular diseases, an echocardiogram can give you a lot of information. And in fact, speaking of congestion, now there are additional methods by ultrasound to judge the amount of fluid overload. And interestingly, these methods can also be done at the bedside, and they are quite fast to do. But our momentarium has expanded tremendously. We now have devices that some patients need that provide us some information about fluid. We have implantable hemodynamic monitors such as the CardioMEMS device. And increasingly more so in our clinic, and I certainly know that that's the case in Dr. Fudim Institution, is the precise measurement of blood volume. So we know these measurements are important. Some of the things you measured have been the classical teachings about the signs and even the symptoms of heart failure. But Dr. Fudim, those are not always... They don't equate to what the intravascular volume is, which is where blood volume analysis comes in. Maybe tell us and tell the people listening a little bit about that concept. Yeah, I'm just going to expand on the perfect summary of what Dr. Consenza just gave us. You know, if we think of how we examine our patients and determine whether fluid overload is present, whether congestion is present, which not necessarily, as I said before, means the same thing. It's important to acknowledge that the physical exam is universally used. It is the gold standard and also has been essentially the same physical examination that we could have used thousands of years ago by the ancient Greeks. I mean, the techniques have not evolved dramatically. We still observe the patient and push on their shins and look at their neck. So technologies have evolved, particularly over the last 50 years with blood markers, implantable, non-implantable technologies. And I also want to emphasize that Congestion does not mean that the patient has too much fluid and salt retention. 
because you can have an episode of decompensation where you get short of breath, you have elevated pressures in the heart without objective evidence of fluid and salt retention, which something that I personally study as well is merely the act of redistributing volume in the body can be sufficient to explain how you can have elevated pressures in the heart, but you actually don't have a single milliliter of extra fluid. And that's due to vasoconstriction. Our body can constrict arteries and veins and thus shift around blood volume in our body. So that is important because it's not only important to measure how much fluid we have, but it actually also matters where the fluid sits because that might be actually two different aspects of this term congestion. But let me talk specifically about congestion metrics and what they measure. You know, it is probably important to note that every metric that we utilize in modern medicine to determine congestion status, either a serum marker, physical exam, a device parameter, all measure what they are supposed to measure, but it might not be the same thing. I always bring up the story of the blind man and the elephant. Each of those tests is like a blind man is touching a part of the elephant. They're telling a part of the story of what congestion means for that individual patient, but they might not tell the whole story. And one of the tests that we early alluded to is, for example, blood volume analysis, which is probably what is the gold standard of determining the actual intravascular blood volume. And intravascular blood volume is important because that is often our primary target for pharmacological strategies or device-based strategies. When we try to remove fluid from the body, we often tend to target the intravascular for space first because that's where we pull out fluid initially. So a way to measure the, the blood volume in the human body could be done in multiple ways, but the one way that is currently available and FDA approved is using radio-labeled albumin injection, which allows the determination of blood volume, which includes the two components of blood volume, plasma and red blood cells. Those together make up the total blood volume pool. Those can be individually determined by injecting a radio tracer and through so-called radio dilution technique over several blood draws, able to determine what the actual blood volume is in that patient and what the subfractions are. That is what is referred to commonly as blood volume analysis. So the importance of knowing where the fluid is and whether it's increased or decreased is critically important. And as you mentioned, there is so much tension to develop new tools for measurement because of its importance. Let's turn a little bit to once you know where the fluid is and what needs to be done, we often use therapies to try to get rid of it. So let's talk a little bit about how it's treated and the upsides and downsides of that. And Marie, I'm going to start with you. I mean, one of the techniques that you employ with your patients is ultrafiltration, a very powerful technique. And so how do you approach the need to know with great precision what the volume status is in your patients? So actually, ultrafiltration is a very good example of the interplay between the blood volume that is inside the blood vessels and the extra fluid that is in the interstitium. And basically what ultrafiltration does, it removes gently, it should be done gently, fluid from the intravascular space 
And that transient decrease in the volume in the blood vessels attracts the fluid that is stored into the interstitium back into the blood vessels so that we can remove fluid, hopefully without actually removing too much fluid. And as Marat mentioned, when you measure blood volume with the blood volume analysis, you measure both plasma, you measure the red blood cell mass, and so you can precisely determine how much you have decreased the plasma volume and how much you have increased the concentration of the red blood cells by removing the fluid. So when we started doing ultrafiltration, one of the most common questions was, how do you know when to stop? And it was a excellent questions, but very difficult to answer beyond, you know, improvement of clinical signs. Now with blood volume analysis, we can actually determine when we have reached a more normal blood volume and we can terminate the therapy accordingly. That's incredible. You know, what I'm seeing is that as our therapeutics or treatments get better and better, our diagnostics, how we measure the volume in each of the compartments are need to improve and need to get better. Dr. Fudim, let me ask you about, there's a new class of drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are potent in reducing glucose and control of diabetes and have been found to be very helpful in patients with heart failure, in part related to their ability to reduce volume. And so let me ask you about how you use those drugs and how you try to get the best look at the volume status in your patients. Thank you. So it's interesting. I think SGLT2, I call it, you know, in some regards, like a miracle drug because it seems to have so many different effects. And I'm not sure we're understanding the full extent of its actions, but it's important to note that most of the drugs we use in heart failure to date, to some degree target the volume, the blood volume, the interstitial volume. It is always an intent of the drugs to modulate that volume because we know the congestion of volume is sort of an important determinant of heart failure state and progression. Specific for SGLT2s, I think there's many different hypotheses how the drug works. Some of them is through metabolic effects. So it by peeing out sugar, even if it's not overabundantly present, because this drug has also been found to be affecting outcomes positively in the absence of diabetes. So not having normal sugar levels does not make this drug any less effective, which is fascinating. Well, because the primary action of this drug is diuresis of sugar molecules. So you pee out the sugar and the salt and water follows it. Interestingly, in studies from Yale, Testani and colleagues, have found that the amount of water you lose over a course of several weeks to few months is actually not that dramatic. So it is not anywhere comparable to, for example, diuretics like Lasix. So the amount of blood of blood of serum lost is actually very small. Patients tend to gain red blood cell in parallel. So that is something a little bit counterbalances actually the effect of the plasma volume loss. 
Other effects of the drug that have been proposed target the autonomic tone. It has been found to decrease the sympathetic stress on the heart and the vasculature. There are some metabolic effects that I mentioned earlier is it induces a state of nutrition depletion. So the body starts to go into a sort of hunger strike. And that is actually good for the human body because that's what we do with stuff like keto diet. When we induce starvation state, which allows our body to cleanse itself and turn on metabolic processes that are actually healthy for the human body. So there are some of the hypotheses that are currently pursued in ongoing studies to try to understand why SGLT2s have done so well in the heart failure space. But the way I use the drug, because it is hemodynamically non-significant, what do I mean with that? That drug, unlike many other drugs, does not lower blood pressure. It does not significantly lower blood sugars. So in many ways, it's as safe as it gets And I tend to initiate the drug actually very early upon the first visit with my heart failure patients because there's really no excuse not to unless it cannot be afforded because that drug is expensive. Insurance companies not always are willing to pay for that drug for the heart failure space quite yet. So if possible, it's affordable. I start on everybody in the first visit. So there's a lot of things emerging and this has been a lot of information. But let me ask you both and I'll start with you, Dr. Costanzo. Should patients bring this topic of congestion up with their clinicians, their nurse practitioners and physicians and their team when they see them? Absolutely. And I think that handling their volume status should be the centerpiece of education by both the physician and the nurse and nurse practitioners in the office. And often patients, I find, don't realize that the word heart failure means that there is something that might be wrong with how much fluid they have in their body and how this fluid is distributed. So absolutely, they should bring it up and absolutely, they should receive as much education as possible. I think to add one comment to what Marat said is that even SGLT2 inhibitor, like any other drug in heart failure, has to be used with caution in patients that have very advanced disease. And the ability to use SGLT2 inhibitors may require adjustment of other medications. For example, I prefer to reduce the dose of diuretics to enable the patient to take the SGLT2 inhibitors without side effects. And the same thing is true for Valsartan Secubitril. So I think that patients should also be educated on where they are at in the trajectory of their heart failure. Right. And Dr. Fudim, anything else that you have seen your patients ask about? Or how do they get to that point of scrutinizing with you their med reconciliation, looking at each of the medicines, as Dr. Costanzo just said, and really being part of that team? I mean, what have you heard or what would you recommend? You know, if there's one thing that should stick out to the listeners today is what Dr. Costanzo said about when do we know when to stop in regards to diuresis? This is sort of the most important question in clinical setting, not just in the hospitalized setting where we struggle with when have we diuresed enough? When can we pull back? 
But the same thing continues on an outpatient basis. We tend to escalate medications. You know, the number one complaint by my patient is, doc, you keep adding drugs, you never discontinue drugs. And it is tough because we don't do that for fun. We do that because drugs have incremental benefit as shown in large studies. So it's important for patients and providers to clearly understand the mechanism of action, potential interactions of drugs and med rec. So once the patient tries to sort of leave the office and review the medications, it's extremely important to understand that we know why each drug is on. And then bringing it back to the volume status, we tend to keep patients on diuretics, but often lose track of what the volume status is. You can imagine a patient's volume status can fluctuate from day to day, yet we see patients only every three to six months. So assessment of volume becomes extremely important, even at home. And the patient becomes our best friend and advocate if they stay in touch with us through technology or via phone or messages to educate us about their volume status because diuretics and other medications can affect volume status and need to be modulated. Like Dr. Sanza said, if you start one drug, it might affect how the other drugs are acting on your body. So medications and medrex is not something we do once a six months. This is a fluid state and we are partners in this together. What I have Great. been very, very pleased with is the willingness of patients to participate in their care in this respect. And the best example I can give you is the example of the cardiomems. When we first did the champion trial, a lot of skeptics kept saying, well, you have all the measurements because the patients were part of the study is going to be different in the real world. And then we did the real world study, the post-approval study, and we had a 90% compliance with weekly measurements and almost 80% compliance with daily measurements. So I find patients very willing to participate in their own care. Maria Rosa and Murat, I'm really grateful for your time today. And you really have done so much to inform, but also educate and elevate what our patients now know about heart failure in general, but also this really critical topic of congestion. So thank you. Thank you so much. And Laura, back to you, please. Thanks, Dr. Silver, and thank you, Drs. Fudim and Costanzo, for being here today. It was a really great conversation, and I appreciate all of your input. And to find more resources related to heart failure, visit the Heart Failure Society of America's website at hfsa.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. To all of the listeners of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, thanks for joining us and have a great day. 